Father God, I uh, thank you that your word reveals who you are. And we are thankful recipients of the story. Thank you for all of these women and the fact that you love us and know us. I pray that you would um, help us to glean what it is that you want us to see in this final look at the book of Joshua. May you be honored. May you be lifted high. May we see who you are. Amen. Okay, so I'm curious if any of you remember the questions that we found way back in chapter one. So as we looked at chapter one, I felt like it just dug up a ton of questions and created tensions. The questions that we came up with that kind of we felt like maybe the audience was sitting in was this, uh, is Joshua going to be as good as Moses? Like, will Joshua be the next Moses? Next question, will the people obey? Right? We were so curious, will the people obey Joshua? We imagined that that was in his mind. And then lastly, will God be faithful? Maybe God was just going to be with them until they got to the promised land, but then it was going to be up to them. Do you remember those questions? Will Joshua be a good leader? Will the people be good followers? Will they be faithful? Will God keep his promises? And after five weeks of study, guys, we find ourselves kind of in a funny spot because as we look at these closing chapters, we find all of those questions still remain. Or maybe they kind of went away in the middle of the book and we thought we were getting answers, but now here we are. And this book ends so oddly, in my opinion, that I was looking at it and I'm like, oh, I still feel like those questions are still up in the air. So we're going to spend our last time here together looking at those exact, exact same questions. But I actually want to like ask you guys, do you even feel like you know what you read? I mean, it was kind of a weird week. Even without the typo, it was weird, right? And we listened to all of those chapters that went on about the allotment of the land and the boundaries of the land. And if you're like me, you would be listening to it. And then at some point you had no idea when you stopped listening to it. <laughs> And then you start over, try a different accent or a different reader, right? Different version of it. There's chapters and chapters of the dividing of the land. I like how the Bible Project guys talk about it. It was kind of like describing a map without any pictures. It was very challenging. And then in chapter 24, we read Joshua's final speeches to the people. And that just got weirder. It was kind of like this re-upping on the covenant but the way that Joshua responded to the people was awkward. So my question that I present to the finale of the book of Joshua is how are we to have our happily ever after if these questions aren't answered? I feel like we are all at risk of leaving in a cloud of confusion. And I've heard that even from some of you or you're passing it on about other people. <coughs> The number one thing that I hear that we're still confused about is how can God be good, right? Maybe some of you are still confused. Can God be good when there is this much killing going on? (coughs) 
our questions with the people. Maybe the people obeyed at times, but here at the end, it's not looking that good for them. They're not seen in the best light. We're worried that their obedience isn't going to stick. And now we have Joshua's death. So maybe Joshua was a good leader for a while. Uh, Maybe he was even a great leader in our mind, but now here they are in Canaan. Is Canaan just going to fill right back up with sin and idolatry? So let's work through these questions. Let's look close one more time at this text and see if we can get any answers. Let's go backwards. Let's start with our third question. Will God be faithful? Is God faithful according to the book of Joshua now that we have read all of it? Well, what did we find? I don't think it's super obvious, but actually guys, the chapters that we listen to is where we find our answer. Those detailed, monotonous chapters about the allotment of the land is where we find our answer that yes, God is faithful. Because it is in those painstaking details that we see that God is keeping his promise from Abraham on to give all of Abraham's children the land. Not one person is left out. Not one tribe is left out. Not one mile of land. The promise given to Abraham and his children to receive the land is fulfilled in the chapters that we listened to this week. So what did that teach us about God, right? That's the most important question we can ask when we read the Bible. What's that teach us about God? That the promise maker is also the promise keeper. So within the Bible, the promise maker of Genesis is a promise keeper in the book of Joshua. And even more so as the Bible opens. But do you remember what that broader promise was that we talked about, again, in week one? It's the promise of home. It's the story of home that God would make a home for his children, primarily for this purpose, that he would be with them. So even before we talk about the purpose of them being a light to the nations, even before that, guys, we get to enjoy the fact that the purpose of a home is that it would be a place for God to be with his children. In fact, I think that we should take a moment, because it's so important, to retell the story of the Bible. You guys did it in your homework on day three, and I think as we wrap up the book that we should do it just one more time. Try and stay with me, even if it's really familiar for you guys. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God is depicted as the king, and he is making a place with his power for his people. That's how one scholar says it. Every kingdom needs power, it needs people, and it needs a place. And that's what we see right away in Genesis 1 and 2. God is king. He's using his power to create. He's making a home, Eden, for Adam and Eve. But what happens Even though he is a good king, Adam and Eve rebel against him. They decide that they want the power that they want to define good and evil. So they rival him. And all heck breaks loose after that. They're kicked out of their home. Adam and Eve are the first exiles in the Bible. And yet in his mercy as we have learned to look for. In his mercy, God continues with this plan. He still has a plan to make a home for his people. And so he picks it up several chapters later with a man named Abraham. 
This is when we see the story contract down on one man. God says that he's gonna fulfill his promises through one man and his family. So he comes to Abraham and he promises him his presence and he promises him land and he promises him people. And we see the story go from Abraham to the long-awaited son Isaac and then to Jacob and then through his 12 sons, which is where we get the 12 tribes of Israel, we actually see the line continue through Judah, the royal line. But the story kind of takes a turn there. And that's where we actually see Joseph go off to Egypt, one of the other 12. And all of the children of Israel then are enslaved in Egypt. 400 years later, who comes on the scene? Moses, good. Moses comes to liberate the people of God. And they are led out into the wilderness again as exiles, as homeless children. They are on their way to the promised land. And in a very important pivotal moment, they lack faith, all but Joshua and Caleb. And they say, the land is full of bad guys. We can't go in there. And so God makes the people of God, the people wander in the desert for 40 years, homeless. And then that's when our story picked up, when the people of God are being brought home. Joshua as their leader. Guys, and we saw kind of the, the front doors of their home open as the Jordan split and as Jericho's walls fell down. The people of God are welcomed home. And this is where we use a really big word, re-Edenizing, as the promised land was described much like Eden. And we are cued in that God is repeating what he did back in Genesis 1 and 2. He's created this this beautiful place for flourishing. The story we saw this week in our homework is all about God. As we mark those repeated I, 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 and those verb phrases seen, I mean, it was a ridiculous amount of things that you had to write down, right? A long list of things that God did for his children, making it so clear to us that this story is about God and what he did for his children. It's a really big deal that God is bringing his children home. And I feel like we get this. And maybe even more specifically as a room of women, I think we get that home is a really big deal to us. I feel like no matter our personalities, no matter our experiences, there's something about home that has a big effect on us. And guys, I, I know this to be very true right now because Matt and I are actually in between homes. We are gonna be moving to Tiffin in a couple months, hopefully. And so we are in the process of buying and selling a home. And I cannot tell you, I have lost count of how many mood swings I have had. There's something about home. In fact, if I were to like tell you about the different homes that we've purchased in the past or the transitions that we've had, those would be our biggest fights to date. Right? Does anyone else, somebody please nod, right? Like there's something about moving that makes you crazy. And we're experiencing that right now. And I, I couldn't have timed that better. And I'm feeling so much comfort from God's story of home. But I feel like it applies to all of us, whether you're settled or not, even if you're in an apartment or, or just short-term housing, there's something about, about it, how a home is run, how a home looks, how it operates what it looks like, what it feels like, that really affects us. I think this is true if you had a rough upbringing where home wasn't safe, 
where home wasn't peaceful. I would bet that if that's true of you, that that's something that you've had to work through before. Conversely, if home was a really good place full of love and and safety and, and order and the gospel, that that has made you who you are. It's a really big deal. And I think that that reminds us of who God is as the one who would bring his children home. And guys, it, when we create a home, I think that it, it's a time that we bear God's image. And it reminded me of our current home, which I have loved our time in our current home. We bought it about six years ago, and I was really, really excited about this place to bring our boys. So Micah was like five or six. I think we had like a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and an almost two-year-old. And it had woods in the back, and it had this flat yard and a creek, and I was so excited. It was kind of like fake country, if you've been to my house. Like, it's kind of on the outskirts of town. So I was so excited. We had been in a rental um, for, for almost a year, and so I was just ready to make a home for our little family, to dig our roots into Iowa City. So one day, we are coming home um, from picking something up, maybe off of, like, Facebook Marketplace, And I walk into the kitchen, and as I walk into our kitchen, I see a black and white striped tail disappear into my Lazy Susan. You know what a Lazy Susan is? Right? There was a raccoon walking into my Lazy Susan like it was no big deal. And just took a seat back there and then, you know, like got back in the corner and then just kind of looked at us with his beady little eyes. And all heck breaks loose at that moment. Our dog, of course, like lunges forward. I grab him. Okay, we have three boys at this point. Here's what happens. Guys, I've been waiting for this to fit into a Bible study talk for years. Years. If it doesn't fully apply, I don't care. I'm going for it, okay? My firstborn, Micah quickly disappears into the garage and comes back faster than I can explain with a brick in his hand. And he goes like this. He puts his posture like this. He's like, don't worry, mom. I'm the animal guy. Matthias, my sweet middle, my mercy, starts bawling because of the brick in Micah, that typical type A firstborn, like Messiah complex child. And then my psycho child, Max, doesn't really know what's going on, but he senses all this and he sees that nasty little thing in the lazy Susan. He just starts going, ah, just screaming, just going crazy. If you know him, it's so consistent with who he is. He's like, this is the funnest thing ever. So I'm holding the dog. Guys, this nasty thing had dropped things, droppings all over my brand new kitchen. And it had like two exits, so Matt like quickly goes and like grabs plywood and blocks one of the exits so that we can like shoo this thing off the back porch, okay? But we, it takes forever. We have to get, I'm like getting the kids back into the back room. Micah is still plotting like this murder. The dog is going crazy. I'm like forcing them in this back bedroom because Matt has to deal with it, right? And so it takes forever. This thing is not scared at all. We finally get him out of my cabinet. And he just walks as slowly, he just looks at us, and his joints are locked. So if any vets are there, we're like, oh, this dude's sick. 
he has rabies. It was like three o'clock in the afternoon and he's just strolling at us. He's not scared of us at all. It was disgusting and it was terrifying. And it might help you understand the book of Joshua just a little bit. I really think this. Let me think about how I'm going to make this connection. Okay. Would you, what would you think if Matt said to me, you know what, Rebecca, why can't we just let him stay in the lazy Susan? Right? I mean, he can just stay in his little corner and it'll be fine. You've got this new home. Look, you've got plenty of space here. Why don't you just let him be? Right? No, that would have been disgusting. That would have been ridiculous, right? Matt, as a good homemaker, me as a good homemaker, is going to require that that thing leaves our home, right? There's no way that our home is going to be safe or orderly or hygienic with that in our home. It did not fit in our home. That would not have been loving, even if it made the kids have fun and excitement. That would not have been loving or good parenting if we let that raccoon stay in our lazy Susan. Guys, the rest that was waiting for the Israelites, the comfort that they would feel in the land of Canaan, the safety that they would feel would come on the other side of obedience. And it would come because God's idea was that it would be their home. Now we're gonna come back to this in a second, but actually I want us to stop here and apply this for a second, guys. If home is such a big deal, then I see it, again, especially in this room, as an opportunity, like a canvas for us to evaluate our hearts towards the Lord. If the topic of home, if, if home is an area in which you regularly feel all the feels, then there might be something there that God wants to get your attention with. Let me, let me give you a couple examples. So obviously, like when you're moving, I feel like you've got all the feels, right? You've got the high highs and the low lows. And every time there's a mood swing in my life, guys, there's a really good chance that there's an idol in my life. Not always. Sometimes it's just how life is. But often, if I'm going real high and real low in a short matter of time, it's because my hope is in something other than God. If home and, and maybe having a certain level of cleanliness and order and things going just as you like them to go, if that causes you angst, anxiety, anger, could there be an idol related to home? Could it be that the thing that's supposed to remind you of God, the thing that's supposed to draw you to worship has actually become a God in your life. Do you get what I'm saying, guys? Home is God's idea. And when we flourish in our home and when we make a home, we are to be reminded of him and we are to represent him and bear his image. But sometimes we're just an inch away from what is healthy to what is unhealthy. So if home, if, if certain behaviors come out of you when you're home, right? More anger, uh, addiction, lust. 
Like home is not to be a place to hide our sins or where only our, that's where our, our true nature comes out. Home is to be a place that lifts our gaze to the one who thought of it. And I just think how different would even our church be if we took this so seriously as women? If we took how we behave at home, how we behave, behave as roommates, as wives, as moms, as friends, how we use hospitality, if we would lay this before God and say, show me what's in me that's not of you. Show me where the thing that is from you has actually become an idol and become the thing that I serve and the thing that affects me the most. The book of Joshua has revealed God as king and as a merciful king, but also as a homemaker. There's multiple Psalms even that talk about how God is our home. And that can be a beautiful comfort for those of us who come from if you come from an unhealthy home or you're in transition, Deuteronomy says the eternal God is our dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. Do you hear the comfort that is depicted in that, describing God as our home? Psalm 90 says it so perfectly. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. It's not just that home reminds us of him, it's that he is our home, guys. He is the place that we exhale, that we feel safe, that we can feel vulnerable, which means we need to come to him as if we believe that, which means we don't come to him only when we feel put together. That means that we don't keep him at a professional distance. For years, I have struggled with just being a performer for God, where I feel like I have to straighten my tie, so to speak, fix my curls, so to speak, before I could come into his presence. I have to make sure that I have all my sins in check or hidden before I can come to him. He is our dwelling place for all generations. He is our home. And the story of Joshua shows that beautifully. So we're still on our first question, guys. As we close Joshua, is God faithful? Absolutely. His faithfulness is explicitly clear. But if you go on and you talk about the book of Joshua with people who don't know the Lord, or maybe you are brand new at this, at, at reading the Bible, and you are honest, you would say, still, how can we say he's good against a backdrop of so much death? Because we saw even more of it this week. And I want us to tackle this, guys. These are the really hard questions that were stirred up regularly in this study. And here's what I want to challenge us in. Could it be that sometimes when we say, God is so faithful, what we mean is, God just behaved like I wanted him to. Sometimes do we say, God is so good just because we got what we wanted. Maybe we don't mean what we're saying. Maybe we haven't yet gotten 
to the, the depth and the riches of the statement that God is faithful. Because what that means is that God can be perfectly safe and perfectly full of mercy, but that he will always be God. He'll still always be good, but he will always act out of his all-knowing and all-powerful will. We need to get to this point where we can say that God is faithful even when I don't understand the circumstances. God is faithful even when I'm getting a no from him. God is faithful even though I'm still waiting. Ladies, how would we be different if we could become women who dig so deep that we can say, God is good when Jericho's walls haven't yet fallen, when that baby is not yet in our womb, when that mom has not yet asked for forgiveness of us, when that husband has not yet come, or when that husband has not yet changed. Could we be women who say, God is good. God is faithful, even against a dark backdrop. Kate did a great job of, of laying out some really important truths for un, us to understand about the Canaanites. Last week, she reminded us that this was not God killing the Canaanites, God driving out the Canaanites because they were Canaanites. It wasn't ethnic cleansing. God drove them out because it was evil, not because they were Canaanites. And we see that, right? Again, we're looking through that lens of Rahab and the Gibeonites. God was waging war on evil. So is God faithful and will God be faithful? Yes. Question number two, will the people be faithful? The book opened with that question and the book closes with that question. Will the people be faithful? The answer is no. So we saw Joshua calls them all together and he gives them this great speech, this hoorah, here we go speech. And they respond with enthusiasm that they will serve the Lord. Okay, so our progression is, is that we have received the promises. We have taken the land, possessed the land, divided the land, and now they are being called to serve. And they say, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua responds with, mm, mm -mm. no, you won't. You can't. And it's so weird. I'm like, why doesn't Hobby Lobby finish that verse on all their flags? And Joshua says, eh, eh, it would be maybe not such a market for that. But isn't that true, guys? Don't we know that first verse so well? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But the truth of it is weird. Joshua says, no, you won't. And why does he say that? Because your God is holy and he is jealous. See, there are some hints that the people would be unfaithful, right? We saw that, we heard it in what we read, but you know what, guys? I actually don't think that that's the biggest reason why he says that. I think he says it more because of who God is. He's holy. 
and he's jealous. Even in you, your following him, you will mess up because you are an unfaithful people. So it's like the story ends and the kids are at home, but there's a sense of foreboding. There's this sense that they aren't subduing the home that they have been given. They're not ruling like the home like God intended. From Genesis, they were told to subdue the land. And that's what they were supposed to do with the Canaanites, subdue the land. Again, it's the raccoon. Matt needed to subdue our land by taking care of that raccoon. But they don't do it. They don't drive out the evil completely. There's just a couple little hints, but guys, if you know what book comes next, and if you've read it, then you understand how a little bit of compromise is going to spread through the whole people. Because the book of Judges comes next, and it opens up with the people of God disobeying. That little bit of disobedience, that little bit of delayed obedience has now spread throughout all of God's people. How is this supposed to be good news? Aren't we supposed to end our story with good news? How can this moment with Joshua leave us with any hopes? They were told to do something that they literally could not do. And maybe you're saying that's not fair. As sinners, they could not perfectly obey a holy God. They could not keep his law. How is it good news? because it leaves the people of God then and now searching the horizon for somebody who could. It leaves the audience of God's story looking ahead for someone who will come after Joshua. Somebody who will lead the people and obey when Israel couldn't. Somebody who would obey fully and completely. And that gets us to our third question. How can it be good news that Joshua has died? How can it be good news that this strong leader, this leader who, who seemed to make minimal mistakes, and even when he made a mistake, where did we find him? In front of the mercy seat of God, bringing his mess with him. And seeking the Lord, probably my favorite image of the whole book of Joshua. How is this good news? Before we fully resolve that, let's talk about one more detail. It says that Joshua dies, and we took note of his job description. At the beginning of the story, it was Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. And at the end... We have Joshua, servant of the Lord. And I asked you guys, like, why do you think the author was so detailed in this? Why was this such a big deal? And I think you probably had a couple different answers come up. Here's what went through my mind. You're telling me that he did all these good things. He stepped into the shoes that nobody wanted to step into. He led a people who were not known for following very well. He fought battles. He was strong. He was courageous. He was humble. He did all of this stuff and so many things that didn't even make it into the book of Joshua. And the promotion he gets is from assistant to servant. That's it? Did anyone else feel that? Like, 
He got gypped. Are you kidding me? All that he laid down, how many times did he look at death in the eye and his promotion, this climactic moment, is servant of the Lord. Is that even better than assistant? I'm not even fully convinced that it is. So how are we to find hope and good news in this detail at the end of Joshua? He was steadfast. He was faithful. He endured. He was long-suffering. He was a warrior. And this is his promotion, servant of the Lord. How is this good news? Because it points us to the true and better Joshua. It points us to who Joshua was foreshadowing. The prophet Isaiah handles this uh, mystery so well. The first half-ish of Joshua talks about a king, a a Messiah, a king. He's called the arm of the Lord, the one who is going to come and rule for God. Then the second half of the book, Isaiah talks about the servant of the Lord. And then with just absolute mastery, he weaves these titles together, pointing to the main character of the whole story of the Bible, the king, the arm of the Lord, who would rule for God, is also the servant of the Lord. Jesus is both. He would come as the high king, the good, merciful king that Israel had always been waiting for, but he would take the form of a servant. Isaiah says it like this. He says, And to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed, his arm rules for him. The Lord comes with might. Think of this power and this strength. And then it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Guys, the great irony that Joshua and Isaiah are pointing to is our gospel hope. That just as Joshua was promoted or demoted to be servant of the Lord, one would come after him who would go even lower. Jesus would come not just to serve, not just to wash feet, but he would come and serve all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. He would say to his disciples, the greatest among you will be your servant. He would say to to them that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Guys, the true and better Joshua is Jesus. He came not to be served, but to give his life. Jesus, the arm of the Lord, the merciful King, The promised ruler over God's house came to be a servant. And this should make us scratch our heads. This should blow us away as Jesus comes front and center to the book of Joshua. This should confuse us because of the world that we live in and because of the sin that we fight against on the inside. Because if we're honest, there is nothing in us that naturally wants to hurry down the ladder, 
There is nothing in us that wants to forsake greatness and comfort and riches. We want to go up the ladder. We want to become more important. We want to be seen like Joshua was seen. And yet this book invites us to do the opposite. Because if God himself could come in human flesh, humbly leaving heaven to earth and then going after 30 years on earth to a cross to die a criminal's death, then we too can take the form of a servant. What do we do with the book of Joshua? How do we live differently? We learn to quietly and faithfully serve the Lord. While we are waiting to be brought home, what do we do? Guys, it's not novel, it's not creative. We learn faithfulness. We remain steadfast. But ladies, this is what I I, I really do believe that we are ready for. When we talk about this, guys, I want us to talk about it with some grit. Today, I had a moment where, ironically, I was working on this, and we kind of got another... I, another mood swing was coming with the house thing. Got a text that was sad. And I had a moment where I felt myself tanking emotionally, right? And my first stop was like, okay, no, no, just like trust the Lord. It's fine. You know, like something kind of just like, like quippy, you know, like it's okay. Like God's got this. And I was like, uh-uh, I need more than this. I need more than just this feel-good, quippy kind of faith. I need to dig deep. I need to actually change my posture in this moment. I need to scrape the bottom of the barrel of my belief in God. I need to dig real deep if I'm not going to be led by my flesh right now. If I'm not going to be led by the unseen, if I'm not going to get swallowed by doubt, I need to do something way more than just make myself have a little pep rally. I need to dig deep. I need to get tenacious. I need to throw myself before the presence of God and ask him to help my unbelief. I need to come to him and say, I don't feel strong and courageous right now. I feel completely consumed by all of the sins that I've been turning to my whole life. God, I need you to go before me. I need to ride on your strength. Jesus, I need to ride on your courage. I need you to show me the reality of the situation. I needed some grit. Ladies, what is it for you that it's time to kind of turn up the heat in your battle against? Is it anger? Do you need to stop just kind of fighting it and it's time to find some grit? It's time for you to hate your anger. It's time for you to despise that you have a temper. Is it your anxiety? Is it gossip? Is it pride or greed? Ladies, we're not going to gain ground on it. We're not going to completely clear our lives of this evil if we just kind of shrug it off a little bit. If we just kind of say, oh, I'll do better. We need grit, ladies. We need to maybe be not ladylike towards our sin, 
Dig deep. Fight like you mean it. We've talked about this union with Christ. And that's this beautiful mystery and paradox at the end of Joshua. The people of Israel were told, you can't obey. And Joshua wasn't wrong to say that. But do you see how that moment where they are told to do something that they cannot do, how it projects out of the Old Testament and points us to the hope of the cross? Because if our hope is in the cross, if our hope is in Christ, then we are one with Christ, which means he shares his victory with us. So stop thinking that the sin that you've always battled is always gonna be hanging on to you. That's not true. You can fully clear your life of that sin because you are in Christ. You shared in his death when you gave your life to him. It is time for you to share in his victory. You are more than conquerors. We will say it two weeks in a row. You need to hate it. You need to hate that sin and turn from it and step out into this life as a new creation and await God to come as a victorious king and bring us fully home. Unlike the Israelites, we are able to serve the Lord. We can choose this day whom we will serve. The book of Joshua is our gospel story. Ladies, we've got to grab hold of it. We've got to share it. And we've got to walk in confidence. The God of the book of Joshua is our God. And he is all that you need to live in the land, to cultivate faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, would you set our faces on the hope that is to come to the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, we, because we are in right relationship with you, we get to live in the land. But Lord, there is another measure of that that is to come and you will invite us further up and further in into your abundant life. So give us the faith to follow you there. Amen.